1: Today's episode is sponsored in part by Libertarianism.org. Political philosophy gives us tools to judge whether governing institutions are good or bad, just or unjust. Libertarianism.org's Introduction to Political Philosophy, available both as a free book and a series of online videos, teaches the basics of these tools. Jason Brennan, a professor at Georgetown University, introduces major theories of justice, equality, and fairness. And teaches how we can all be more thoughtful about policy and politics. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and this has been another long and crazy week. And I want to take this minute just to give a quick shout-out to our editor, Daniel Schaefer. Once again, parsing through all of these documents has led to a late, late late-night recording session. It's midnight right now on Thursday night, and I'm just beginning this recording. Daniel will get this recording probably around 3 o'clock in the morning, and he says it'll have it done for me by noon tomorrow. So big shout-out to Daniel Schaefer for all the work that he's doing on the podcast. And a big part of the reason for the delays this week is that Smith County is taking on some heavy fire. This week has been bombshell after bombshell after bombshell. In the final days leading up to Kerry Max Cook's actual innocence hearing, Cook's attorneys are still continuing to fire off motions to introduce newly discovered evidence in his case. We're going to get into the new development in Cook's case, But first, there's something that I need to do. Kenny Snow wrote me a letter earlier this week. And in the letter, he asked me to pass this message along to his family on the air. I promised Kenny that I would do this for him. And so here's what Kenny wrote. Bob. The next time you're on your show, would you please tell my son Jaquale and my daughter Shamika I said hello and I love them. And thanks for bringing my grandkids to see me on Saturday. That really made my day. And I want to thank my son for being a good man and father. He has passed me by in a lot of things and I'm okay with that. Also, my sister Kimberly and my son's mother in Ohio are coming to see me very soon. It's been almost 16 years since I've seen them. I want to say thank you to you and your listeners for finally giving me my family back. Signed, Kenny Snow. And while we're on the subject of family, I was finally able to get a hold of some people who were personally affected by Edward Ate's case. Over the Memorial Day weekend, I was able to get through to Ed's daughter Kyra, We spoke for a while, and she put me on the phone with her mother, Ed's wife, Kimberly. Kim and I had a very emotional conversation off the air. Just like when I spoke with Ed's mom, the news of the work that's being done on Ed's case and the assurance of evidentiary proof that Ed is innocent brought Kimberly to tears, which in turn brought me to tears. After that initial conversation, Kimberly agreed to call in on the air and talk about her life with two children and a husband serving life in prison. This is my conversation with Kimberly.
2: We haven't seen each other since Father's Day last year, so it may be, you know, coming up on a year.
1: Going back to 1998 when the trial happened, what was your your situation? I know you guys were married. You had two kids at that time. How old were the kids? Well,
2: well actually we had been married a little over a year. We did have a 2-year-old son to be 3-year-old daughter and I was 5 months pregnant with our son.
1: Oh goodness, I I didn't even realize that. So Ed missed the birth of his son. Yes. Your daughter's name is Ki- Kyra?
2: Kyra? Okay.
1: Uh-huh. And then your And she's 20? She's 20. And
2: Zach 20.
1: 20 Kyra's old. twenty and Zach is seventeen. Okay, Zach, uh, and that's that's uh, Zachary Junior. Is that right? And then he goes by Zach. It, it's is
2: Zachary Edward Lewis
1: Eight? Zachary Edward Lewis 8. Okay. Did you guys expect, or did I guess you? The you know, Kyra was only two, but for you, when you went to that trial, did you expect the conviction? Were you expecting him to come home?
2: I was expecting him to come home. Never in a million years did I think this will happen because I believe he was innocent. Uh, so I was expecting for him to come home. So of course, when they came back with a guilty plea, it just totally destroyed. Um, I mean, thankfully it it had to be God that was on my side because I don't even know how I continued in that with that pregnancy. Five months pregnant, I was so stressed. Uh, I cried for months, probably years especially on our anniversary, I cried. Um, I I would try to be strong for this kids. Of course, Zach didn't know what was going on. But Kyra, her and her dad were very close. He would take her to daycare every morning. You know, he just spent so much time with her. So they were really close. And trying to explain to a two-year-old that your dad is not coming home was probably the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. And she would tell you right to this day, we don't even talk about it because it's so sensitive. I, I feel like I failed him as a wife. You know, I just didn't know what to do. You know, it, you know, I couldn't even put into words what I felt. It was terrible. It was heartbreaking, heartbreaking for him, for my kids. I never in a million years thought I would be raising two kids by myself. We had just purchased a home. You know, so all of this was going on. But God, but God saw us through. I've I've never I, I can well I can I've never fallen on hard times. My parents, and my siblings, were my support system. So I always had their support in whatever. So we have been tremendously blessed. We have not missed a beat, and I know it was nothing but God. And I believe everything happens for a reason. I may not ever find out what this reason was. But it was destined to happen. God had it in my path. I don't know why, but it was in our path. So whatever happens, the fact that he has somebody working so hard to get him out is just, I can't even, I can't tell you how I feel at this moment, knowing that somebody is working on his behalf. And I know it's nobody but God. So I want to say thank you. From my family. Thank you for what you have done already. Thank you for believing in him and thank you for diligently working on his behalf. We really appreciate it.
1: It it's it's my pleasure to do everything that we're doing, you know, from the first time that I talked to Ed, it just something about him just struck me as and, and I don't I don't know what it is. You can't I I can't even put my finger on it. But it's just you know when you're talking to a good man.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah,
1: and that was Ed. From the first time I've talked to him to every every day when I when we get to speak on the phone, he's just yeah. You know, I I can't I can't even trick him into being a bad guy. You know, sometimes with you know as an investigator and in, interrogating, you know, yeah. even with him who I'm working for, you know, I always want to make sure that I that I'm finding the truth. And you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll talk to him and I'll give him opportunities to say something bad about someone else or give me an indication that someone else did it and he just he doesn't do it he's just he, he's he's just just honest and and that's that's why it's it, it's been my pleasure to work his case the way that I've done it and, and another thing that I don't know that I've really I- explained quite to you and I know you you know we've just got into contact and if you've 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 started to look into as you said make sure I'm legit before you want to talk to me. <laughs> Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, but the way that this show works is that it's not just me. It it's what I do is a crowdsource investigation. I'm the mouthpiece for about two hundred thousand people from around the world uh that are all contributing and it's it, it's a pretty amazing thing that we have, you know, all these people from literally all around the world with every different skill set and every step along the way my listeners are stepping up to help anywhere that they can, you know, and that's, that's, that's part of what's gotten us here is because when, you know, when I fall, you know, when something falls out of my realm of expertise, there's somebody there to, to pick up the slack. So, uh, you, mm-hmm. Edward and, and you and your whole family have, it's not just me. You have a whole, ar- you have a whole army that are working to get him out of that prison.
2: Mm, that's awesome. It that really is awesome. Thank you. God
1: bless you. Speaking to Ed's family and Kenny's family really brings the importance of our mission home. It's important to understand that these men are not statistics. They're not just numbers. These are real people, real men with families and friends that love them. Imagine the ripple effect that it would have on your family if someone that you loved so dearly was being sent away to prison. The consequences of these Smith County injustices are tragic and heartbreaking. And they're real. This is why I get so angry with the scoundrels in the Smith County Courthouse. They sit in their ivory towers, living lavish lifestyles with the money that they earn by intentionally destroying the lives of innocent men and women. David Dobbs enjoys a day at the country club, while Margie Jackson lays in bed so grief-stricken that she can hardly muster the strength to face another day. I can see Jack Skeen and Dennis Murphy enjoying a nice lunch together, disgusting their pride in Dennis's son Joseph being appointed by Skeen to the DA's office, while Ed's wife Kimberly struggled through labor in the delivery of her son without her husband by her side. As Jack Skeen is being sworn into his judgeship, Kenny Snow misses the death of his mother, father, and all but one of his siblings. While Matt Bingham is enjoying his boost in salary and taking the reins as the district attorney, Kenny Snow misses the birth of his grandchildren. As Judge Joel Baker is sexting with his mistress, without a care in the world, Ed Aites is reading about the death of his grandmother in the paper. When A.D. Clark III was passing the torch down to his first cousin, Jack Skeen, as the new Smith County district attorney, Carrie Max Cook was being gang-raped and having the words good pussy carved into his buttocks with a shank, a scar that he still bears today. District Attorney Michael Thompson, of course, didn't fare so well, and I don't want to minimize the horrible effect this had on his family. I do feel for them. Regardless of the circumstances leading up to it, suicide is a tragedy that no one should ever have to deal with. Remember, Thompson was one of the DAs in Cook's case. He put a jailhouse snitch on the stand to testify that Cook had confessed to him. In exchange for his testimony, the snitch was released after only serving 22 months in jail for a murder. But after Shyster Jackson was released, he took his story to the press and told the world that the DA's office had told him to lie in exchange for his release. Shortly thereafter, Michael Thompson ended his own life. Regardless of a person's actions in life, no family member deserves to suffer through a loss like this. I do feel for Thompson's family. I really do. But compassion for his family does not immunize Thompson from being exposed for the devastation that his conduct has caused. We now have documented proof that Paula Rudolph told Thompson directly that the man that she saw in Linda Jo Edwards' room the night of her murder was her married boyfriend, James Mayfield. After that, he then put her on the stand and allowed her to testify that she is certain that it was Carrie Max cook that she saw in that room and that she had never told anyone that it was Mayfield. Her testimony was the linchpin of the state's case against Carrie Max Cook. How could a jury get past a woman standing up and pointing her finger right at Carrie and saying, that's the man I saw in her room the night she was murdered? And Michael Thompson knew that that was a lie. And as a result of all this, while Michael Thompson's family was mourning his loss at his funeral, Kerry Max Cook was breaking the blade out of a disposable razor for his first attempt at suicide. Because of the intentional, deceptive, disgusting actions of these men, Kerry Max Cook missed the passing of his father and his brother. His mother disowned him. He has literally been scarred for life. Kenny Snow didn't get to watch his children grow up. Missed the births of his grandchildren and had to mourn the loss of so many family members from the solitude of a prison cell. Edward Aids was hauled away from his pregnant wife and daughter. He sat locked away in a cell while his son was being born. His children have grown up without a father, his wife without her husband, and after 18 years in prison, he was living a life without hope. This is why I sound so pissed when I'm reporting on these cases. Horrible things have happened to a lot of good people. And these men are to blame. These were not mistakes. These wrongful convictions are nothing more than a notch on the bedpost of Dobbs and Skeen and Clark and Thompson and Bingham. A conviction is a win. Plain and simple. Well, enough is enough. I sound pissed because I am pissed. And if the Smith County DA's office thinks that things are starting to get ugly now, well, they ain't seen nothing yet. Last week's episode left a lot of people confused about Francis Johnson. As promised, I'm going to really break down what we know about Francis on today's show. Like I mentioned last week, Johnson was alibied for the murder of Elnora Griffin because of the state's Exhibit 137. This exhibit indicates that Francis Johnson was living in Georgia at the time of the murder, sentenced to reside in a halfway house. While residing in the halfway house, Francis was only allowed to leave to go to work and back. The rest of the time, he described it as basically the same as being in jail. Now, Exhibit 137 does show that Francis was paying room and board on the week of the murder. So case closed, right? He was paying room and board for that week. He must have been there wrong. We know now, due to the sentencing document that I have posted on the website from Clayton County, Georgia, that Francis's probation was revoked and he was sentenced to live in the halfway house for one year on January 19, 1993. According to his testimony, he was never allowed to leave and he never even got a weekend pass while he was there. Exhibit 137 does indeed show that he was paying room and board in the week of the murder. However, it also shows that he was paying these fees throughout the entire year. Every week is covered in this document. According to the exhibit, he paid for room and board every single day, from the day he got there, which looks like it was February 1st, all the way through the last date listed on this document, which was July 29, 1993. He testified that the way this process worked was that his paychecks would go directly to the halfway house, They would take out any money he owed, then give him what's left over, if anything. But a closer look at Exhibit 137 reveals the following. Francis got paid every Thursday while he was working. His checks went directly to the halfway house, and they took any fees he owed out of it. In July, he was paid on the 15th and the 22nd. As I'm sure you all know, hourly positions don't pay out on the last day of the pay period. You work a week. The pay period usually ends on a Friday, and you get paid on the following week. So, for example, if Francis worked the week ending on Friday the 16th, he would get that paycheck on Thursday the 22nd. And if he worked the week ending on Friday the 23rd, he would get that paycheck on Thursday the 29th. Working on this principle that Francis received his paychecks for working the week prior, we can put together a hypothetical timeline of when Francis was in Georgia working and when he was AWOL. So again, Francis was sentenced to live in the halfway house on January 19th. He did not check into the halfway house until February 1st. We know this because his first room and board payment says that it covers up through February 5th. The charge was $32. That's four days worth of room and board. At the top of the page, it says that room and board is $8 a day. And then we compare this to Johnny Pryor's testimony that Elnora moved to Tyler in January or February of 1993, and then follow that up with Francis Johnson's own testimony that he helped her move into the trailer. So based on the four days of room and board paid up through the 5th of February, and Johnny saying that Elnora moved in in January or February, and Francis saying that he helped her move into the trailer in Texas, I'm confident in saying that Francis Johnson was in Tyler, Texas the last week of January. Now, when Francis checked into the halfway house, I don't think he had a job. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that he didn't have a job. The purpose behind these types of facilities is to allow offenders to look for a job and work while incarcerated in order to pay off all of their court fees. I know that he did not have a job in Georgia when he checked in because he was living in Texas when his probation was revoked. The reason the probation was revoked was cited in the court documents to be that he had moved to Texas, which was a violation of the conditions of his probation. So we know that he was in Texas at that point. Further evidence to support this is the fact that he signed a document waiving his 72-hour extradition right in January. The only reason that extradition would be an issue is if you were actually residing in a different state, which he was. And you can also see evidence of the fact that Francis didn't have a job when he moved into the halfway house at the beginning of February When we start analyzing his pay history on that document, that Exhibit 137, the exhibit shows that through February and March, he only received two paychecks. One was for $22 and one was for $27. So clearly he did not have a full-time job at this point. Since he was not yet working during those first two months, we have no way of determining whether or not he was actually at the halfway house during those months but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he probably was there and was looking for a job. As I continue to analyze this document, it looks to me as though on or about April 5th is when Francis Johnson started working. The document seems to indicate that he was consistently working a full-time job from April 5th through April 30th. I base this on the fact that on May 11th, the facility received four checks for Francis, ranging from $350 to $400 each. My assumption is that the reason they received four checks at once was due to the fact that it was a court order for his employer to send the checks directly to the facility. This process takes time to put in place. I've actually dealt with this with my own employees over the years. I think that Francis was probably working in those four weeks between April 5th to April 30th, and the checks were sent into the system, and once everything was finally straightened out, on that May 11th date, all four checks were processed into the facility but I believe that on or shortly after April 30th, Francis left the facility for Texas. The reason I believe this is because he had no paychecks indicating that he worked in Georgia from May 1st to May 16th. My hypothesis is that Francis took a weekend pass to go back to Texas on Friday the 30th after work or on Saturday, May 1st. I believe that once he got to Texas, he didn't return to the halfway house in Georgia for about two weeks. Further evidence supporting this is the testimony of Kubia Jackson. Kubia testified on page 99 of her transcript that Elnora was dating Francis sometime between May and July of 1993, but not at the time of the murder. Now, Johnny Pryor also testified that Elnora had been dating Francis, but she wasn't exactly sure when. When you put all this together, his pay history on the exhibit, along with the testimony of Johnny and Kubia, as well as Francis' own testimony about dating Elnora, all of that together is a strong indication that Francis was in Tyler during the first two weeks of May, dating Elnora while he was supposed to be in Georgia. But then the record indicates that Francis was back in Georgia working on May 17th. On June 4th, the facility received two paychecks for Francis for around the same amounts as the last time he was paid. Again, continuing with our assumed pattern, that he worked a week and then got paid the week after. It looks like he worked those four weeks, he left for Tyler for two weeks, he returned back to Georgia and worked two more weeks, but then he disappears again for a week. There's no record of Johnson being paid for the first week of June. It's possible that that was another trip back to Tyler to see Elnora. And again, this is supported by Kubia's statement that they were dating during that time frame. Also, you have to remember Francis' own testimony that he and Elnora dated for a while after she had moved into the trailer, and that they broke up when he came by and saw Linell's white Corvette in her driveway. He further stated that the breakup obviously occurred after she was in Tyler, because remember, he said he was mad because he had spent, quote, his money moving her in. He went on to say that he would still see her occasionally whenever he was over at Johnny's house after the breakup. Considering the fact that El Nora only moved to Tyler in the week or two before Francis moved into that halfway house in Georgia where he was supposed to stay, all of these events had to have occurred after he was checked into the halfway house and all of this is in his own testimony proving that he was in Tyler, Texas, while he was supposed to be at the halfway house in Georgia, and he managed to get away with his at trial because he stated that his probation was revoked. Long after this, and no one bothered to check. Now, Exhibit 137 does indicate that he did return to Georgia and work the week of June 7th through June 11th. The facility received a paycheck on June 18th, and I believe that pay would have been for work the week prior. But after that, he disappears again for three weeks. There is no record of him being paid from June 12th through the 4th of July. Now, Ed told me months ago that he remembers Francis being around at a 4th of July cookout. Also, Johnny testified that Francis was working on her pond sometime after Elnora moved in. Ed and Margie both told me that he was around working on that pond around the 4th of July. Now, I want to point out here that I only figured out this pay pattern in this Exhibit 137 literally today. That's why I'm recording at 1 o'clock in the morning. Because once I found the pattern, it took me all day to break all of these things down. So when both Ed and Margie told me that he was building this pond around the 4th of July, neither of them had any idea why that would be relevant to what I'm discussing right now. Because I didn't even know at that point. But to add to that, Johnny testified that Frances was working on her pond sometime after Elnor moved in. That's what she said at trial. When I was in Tyler last time... Remember, I spoke with Johnny personally, and in that conversation, she told me that he was working on the pond during the summer that Elnora was killed. She was talking to me about a fence that he had built for her that he ended up having to take back down. And she said, right during that summer, right around the time that Elnora was killed, that he was there working on that pond. And at trial, Francis himself testified that he was working on the pond around the time Elnora was killed and he said that he couldn't remember if it was July or August. When you add up all of these different statements about when that pond was being worked on, and then you cross-reference that with Exhibit 137 and my analysis of how the paychecks were broken down, all of these things together strongly suggest that Francis Johnson was in Tyler, Texas during those three weeks. And again, we're talking from June 12th through July 4th. But his pay records indicate that he returned to Georgia to work on the 5th of July. It appears that when he returned to Georgia, that he was there and working for two weeks, from about July 5th through July 16th. The facility received paychecks for him on July 15th and the 22nd. So again, assuming this pattern of pay periods was correct, the week beginning on July 5th, he would have been paid for that on the 15th, In the week ending July 16th, he would have been paid for that on the 22nd. This payment received on the 22nd is part of what Dobbs used to show that Francis was in Georgia on the 22nd, the day of the murder. The problem is that his pay on the 22nd would be from work that he did previously. It proves nothing about his whereabouts on the 22nd. It only shows that he earned that money the week before but there is a strong indication in this document as to where Francis Johnson wasn't on July 22nd. The last set of entries in this document are on July 29th. If this pattern holds true, the 29th would be the day that the halfway house would have received his paycheck had he been working in Georgia on the day of the murder. If Francis had been in Georgia and worked the week of July 19th through the 23rd, He would have been paid for that week, or the facility would have received the check for that week on July 29th. But Exhibit 137 shows that Francis Johnson had no income during the week that Elnora was murdered. To make all this complicated stuff very simple, let me quickly recap and explain the prosecution used the fact that Francis Johnson paid for room and board on July 22nd to prove that he was not in Texas on that date. But the reality is that he paid for room and board for every single day from February 1st to July 29th. And we know that he was in Texas on several occasions during that time frame. He was there when he was dating Elnora. He was there when he saw Lionel's white Corvette in her driveway. He was there when he was working on the pond. And I believe that this document actually presents a compelling argument that he was, in fact, in Texas on the day Elnora Griffin was murdered.
3: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: So now that we know that at the very least, Francis Johnson's alibi does not check out, so let's now move on to explore the possibility of him actually being involved in the murder itself. The question for today is, was Francis Johnson at Elnora's trailer on the night of July 22nd, 1993? Let's start first with what Ed has to say about Francis' involvement. Ed says that when he was in the Smith County Jail in 1997, Francis Johnson was there at the same time. This we know to be true. But Ed claims that one day during wreck time, Francis came up to him and asked about his case. Ed says that he told him that they were going to retry him for the murder and that Johnson told him that he was at Elnora's house that night. He went into great detail about his encounter with Elnora the night that she was killed. After having this conversation with Francis, Ace immediately called his lawyer and told him what had happened. He says that his lawyer told him to write down exactly what Francis said while it was still fresh in his mind, and that he would get those notes from him the next time he came to visit. This note is what was presented at trial as a script given to Kenny Snow, but we'll discuss that in a future episode. But for right now, I'm going to read to you verbatim from this note. You have to forgive the grammar. This is a note that was hastily written down by Ed twenty years ago. Ed wrote, I talked to Francis Johnson at the jail. We talked about what we were both in here for. Then he said, I thought you were finished with that shit. And I told him, no, not yet. Then he said, You know, I seen her twice that day. Then I said, Who? Francis said, Elnora. I said, Where? He said he saw her coming through Jackson Heights. She had just left Edward's store. And he flagged her down and talked to her for a few minutes. Then he said she loaned me twenty dollars, and she told him she didn't have it right now. If I go to town later, I'll get it. Then he said she had to leave. Then he said he went over to her house about eight or eight thirty. then said they talked, and she asked him if he had ate. He told her no, then he said he ate a little and went back into the living. Then he said I was waiting on the money then, but he said she wanted to fuck, so I knocked her off. Then I asked her about the money, and she said I didn't go to town, but I'll get it tomorrow. Then he said, I need it now, so I'll have it first thing in the morning. Then he said she told him, I'm not going nowhere else tonight. Then he said, I slapped the hell out of her. Then he said she hit him in the chest and face. Then I knocked the hell out of her again. He said she grabbed a knife and cut him on his hand, arm, and his neck. Then he took the knife and wore her ass out. Then I left. Now, after hearing that note, and I'll have it posted up on the website so you can see that I'm not just a knucklehead. It's really hard to read. But after hearing it, the key points to remember are that Ed claims that Francis told him that he was at Elnora's house that night, and that she owed him money, and that he beat her up. Now, at this point, this is just a he said, she said. It's Ed's word against Francis's. But Kenny Snow now says that he did, in fact, hear that conversation. Here's a clip from a conversation I had with Kenny back in January of this year.
2: The dude came in. He told him, he said, "Hey, he was I but He told him that he had, he was there. He had been there. He told him this. Okay. But then when he told him what happened, that he that he had a witness that heard what he said, right? Uh huh. That's when they came and got me by myself. His lawyers. No, dogs and doctor and, and Murphy. Okay. Asked me what happened, and I told him. So then. They said that I couldn't be on a witness saying what happened because if I did i'm not going to get I'm going my
1: probate. This is consistent with what Kenny wrote in an affidavit for Ed in two thousand and ten. in the affidavit, Kenny writes quote, "Leonard Francis Johnson told Aides that he had been at the complainant's house the night that she was killed. I heard their conversation. So now that's two people who claim that they heard Francis Johnson say that he was at Elnora's house on the night that she was murdered. But it doesn't end there. Now to be fair, before I move on, I want to make clear that I do not believe that the forensic evidence supports Francis Johnson as the killer. I've said from the beginning, before we ever started looking into suspects, that the person who slit Elnora's throat was likely short and left-handed. Francis Johnson was five foot 170 pounds. And according to Margie Jackson, Ed's mom, Francis was right-handed. Now, speaking of Margie, she had an interesting story to tell me on the phone a couple of weeks ago. So that was the night she was murdered was the night he was back there in the backyard?
3: That was the night. That was the night she was murdered.
1: Okay. Now, now how do you know that that happened?
3: Because he told me this after he moved in with me. He told me all of that.
1: So he told you that the night she was murdered, he was hiding in the backyard...
3: He told me that he had gone over there to get $20 from her. Okay. She told him she didn't have the money. And he asked her when was she going to have it. She said, well, Leonard is coming by tonight when he get out of work. And I think he was getting off like, you know, he coming through, I guess, about ten, ten thirty at night, whatever Tyler Pipe's, you know, schedule was. Yeah. And uh, she said that he was going to give her some money. Okay. So that's why Francis hung around in Johnny's yard until he came and went because he really thought that Leonard was going to give her the money. Okay. So it, she told Francis he didn't give her no money. Francis Johnson bragged to me about He beat her ass because she had told him a lot.
1: After she told me this, we had this exchange. Did you know that he told Ed the same thing in jail?
3: If he told Ed what?
1: That Francis, while he was in jail with him, told him basically the same thing you told me, that he was there that night, they were arguing about money, and that he beat the hell out of her. Oh, really? Yeah. That's what that's what the whole deal was with Kenny Snow, his testimony. Margie says that she didn't know about Ed's claim that Francis had told him the same thing. So now we have seemingly three different people who all claim that they heard Francis say that he was there that night and that Nora owed him money And that he beat her up. Except Margie adds a twist. She says that he told her that Leonard Mosley had been there that night too. And that Leonard and Elnora had sex. So let's talk about Leonard Mosley for a minute. Leonard Mosley interviewed with private investigator Tim Lowndes on three separate occasions. Both Mosley and Lowndes testified at trial about these interviews. But like I said a few weeks back, you have to kind of read between the lines of their testimony. Lowndes had his written reports from these interviews sitting right in front of him at trial. The defense is trying to get him to explain what was said during the interviews, and the prosecution is objecting every step of the way. But even though the full interview never came out in court, it's very clear from the testimony that Leonard Mosley described the exact body position of Elnora Griffin to Tim Lowndes. He claimed that someone else told him how the body was positioned, and he believed this person is the one who murdered Elnora which is a logical conclusion. There's no way anyone can know what her body position was because the crime scene was secure. Mosley also told Lowndes that this suspect is someone that Elnora owed money to. So now let's put all of this together. The document that provided Francis Johnson with an alibi at trial is not only actually useless as an alibi, but in fact it tends to indicate that he was in fact in Tyler on the night of the murder. At the very least, it proves that he could have been in Tyler on the night of the murder. Then we have not one, not two, but three different people who claim that Francis told them that he was in fact there that night and that Elnora owed him money and that he, quote, beat her ass. Then we have the man who was supposed to be at Elnora's that night. The man with a shifty alibi in the hinky timesheet. The man that everyone calls Shorty. The man with a live-in girlfriend who is the mother of his baby. The man with a motive. The man who gave a detailed, accurate description of the crime and the crime scene to a private investigator. This man tells the private investigator that he has a suspect. And the suspect is someone who Elnora owed money to. Now, why would Leonard Mosley think something like that? If he had this information, why wouldn't he give the name of the suspect who knew all the details of the crime scene to the P.I. or to the police? After all, he suspects this man of murdering his girlfriend. So why not turn this guy in? Could it be because Leonard Mosley and Francis Johnson were both there that night? One of the most disturbing things about this is the fact that David Dobbs didn't get duped by Francis Johnson. He actually helped him manufacture this bullshit alibi. Go back and read Johnson's testimony again. He's clueless. He answers questions on directs that put him in Tyler on multiple occasions when he's supposed to be in Georgia. And he also testifies that David Dobbs personally went to his house to get this document, this Exhibit 137. This kind of intentional prosecutorial misconduct has been going on in Smith County for decades. And I want to close the show today with a few more examples of Smith County injustice. By the time you're listening to this episode, I'll be on a plane on my way back to Tyler, Texas to attend the actual innocence hearing for Carrie Max Cook. As I told you last week and at the onset of today's show, Carrie Max Cook's attorneys have been firing away amendments to their writs as they keep presenting new evidence that they're discovering as we speak. I have in my hands now an amendment to Carrie Max Cook's writ for actual innocence that was filed on May 26th. This new amendment lists eight new grounds for the judge to consider actual innocence for Carrie Cook. The grounds range from new DNA evidence to due process violations and more. Last week, I mentioned the discovery of a new tape of a Texas Ranger interviewing the apartment complex manager where Linda Joe Edwards lived. This was a tape that was never disclosed to Carrie Max Cook's defense back in 1977 at the time of the trial. According to this document, it looks like on that tape, the Texas Ranger is talking to the apartment complex manager about a conversation that she had with Paula Rudolph. Remember, Paula Rudolph was Linda Jo Edwards' roommate. She is the one that testified at all of Carrie Max Cook's trials that she clearly and with absolute certainty saw Carrie Max Cook standing in Linda Jo Edwards' bedroom on the night of the murder. Now, we've already discussed the fact that we now know that Paula Rudolph originally identified James Mayfield, Elnora's married boyfriend, as the person she saw in that bedroom that night. And we know now that she actually told the district attorney, Michael Thompson, that it was Mayfield who she saw in that apartment. But by trial, she changed her testimony. This document implies, and this will all come out in the hearing, that Paula Rudolph may have been a homosexual. And based on what's on that tape, Carrie Cook's attorneys believe that it is a likely possibility that the reason that Paula Rudolph changed her testimony was that she feared being prosecuted or being put up as a suspect herself in the murder of Linda Jo Edwards. I'm going to read you a few lines directly out of the amendment. Quote, Dowell and Taylor are both suspicious that Rudolph may be gay, and Dowell believes this murder was committed by a gay person that Dowell and Taylor are suspicious of Rudolph's story that she had left the apartment and was not home until after midnight. They were suspicious of the claim by Rudolph that she found the body and that they also found it suspicious that Rudolph left town right after the murder. Given the state's reliance upon Rudolph's alleged identification of Mr. Cook and the fact that Rudolph originally indicated that Mayfield was who she saw, information indicating that Rudolph herself may have been a suspect is highly exculpatory evidence. This information could lead a jury to find that the reason Ms. Rudolph changed her identification from Mayfield to Mr. Cook is that she was pressured to do so under the threat of arrest as a suspect. Now, besides the fact that it's absolutely disgusting that Paula Rudolph was targeted because of her sexuality, this was also highly exculpatory evidence that should have and was required to be disclosed to the defense. But there's a lot more than that. There's the fact that there was DNA evidence. There was a hair found on Linda Joe Edwards' body with a bloody root attached to it. A bloody root that could have been tested for DNA. Just like in Kenny Snow's case, a few months after the new law was passed in Texas that required that evidence to be preserved, the prosecutor's office ordered that DNA evidence to be destroyed. Now that hair itself had already been compared to Carrie Max Cook's hair on a microscopic level and was determined to have not come from him and the Smith County DA's office ordered it destroyed before anyone could find out who it did belong to. And on the topic of DNA, I've told you all before that Carrie Max Cook accepted a no-contest Alford plea in 1999. This was just minutes before he was to begin his fourth trial for this murder. He had been convicted, that conviction overturned, his second trial resulted in a mistrial, He was tried again a third time where he was convicted yet again and sentenced back to death row. That conviction was overturned. And in 1999, David Dobbs was preparing to try him again for a fourth time. Now on the crime scene, there was semen recovered from Linda Jo Edwards' panties that had been ripped off her body and were actually laying right next to her body on the night of the murder. That evidence had been sitting in storage for 20 years when it was finally sent for DNA testing before this fourth trial. Now the state, namely Dobbs, was all prepared to go forward with this trial and try to convict Kerry Max Cook again and send him back to death row. But while this DNA evidence was still being tested at the lab, all of a sudden, on the day of the trial, Dobbs starts offering pleas to Kerry Cook. Kerry Cook turned down two or three of these pleas because they all required him to plead no contest, but agreed that there would have been evidence presented at the trial that a jury could have used to convict him, and Carey refused. Finally, just 30 minutes before the trial was to begin, Dobbs sends another offer, and he offered Carey Max Cook a plea of no contest, where he had to admit no guilt, and for his plea, he would be sentenced to time served. His ordeal would finally be over. He could go home still a convicted murderer and rapist, but at home. The judge did not give Carey any time to think about this. He was told he had 30 minutes to make a decision or they were moving on with the trial. Carey ultimately took this plea. Now, of course, it's always been called into question, why would David Dobbs make this plea offer in the final hour right before trial when he spent so much time preparing to try Cook for this murder for the fourth time? Well, from the sounds of this amendment, Kerry Cook's attorneys know exactly why, or at least believe they know why, Kerry was given this last-minute plea offer. Leading up to this, the district attorney's office had made a huge deal in the courtroom and to the press that the results of this DNA evidence would prove that Kerry Max Cook killed Linda Jo Edwards. They stated publicly that the person that deposited that semen that ended up in Linda Joe Edwards' panties had to be the person that killed her. Yet while they're still waiting for the results, they give this plea deal. Well, according to this amendment, Carrie Cook's legal team cite evidence of communications between the district attorney's office and the Department of Public Safety laboratory. It doesn't go into detail as far as exactly what these communications were, but the indication there is that David Dobbs found out and knew that that DNA test was going to come back as a match to James Mayfield, which it ultimately did a few months later in April of 99. And of course, after the results came back, that that semen belonged to James Mayfield, the prosecution changed their story. Now they say that that semen could have been in those panties for weeks. It could have even been found after weeks and weeks of laundering but the fact is that that's just not true. This was not a stain on these panties. It was not a scraping. This was semen that was collected in a quantity so much that it has went through six different sets of DNA testing, some of which were done 37 years after the fact. This was a quantitative sample of semen in those panties. And to put it in layman's terms, this was fresh, wet semen. And the only thing that makes sense as to why David Dobbs all of a sudden flipped and offered Cary Max Cook that plea deal is because he already knew that that was James Mayfield seaman, and he knew that that would mean Cary Max Cook's acquittal, and there was no way that he was going to take one of those notches off of his bedpost. He wasn't going to lose his conviction. Now, there's a lot more to this, and there's still more to come. And I'll get into all of it next week, as I'll be reporting every night from Tyler on next week's episode. But there is one huge, disgusting bombshell that came out in a news report from a local news reporter that was covering the evidentiary hearing that happened on May 31st. And I've also been able to obtain copies of these documents. James Mayfield testified at every trial that he and Linda Jo Edwards had broken things off that he had gone back to his wife, and that he had not had any sexual relations with Linda in over three weeks. He said that they still maintained a healthy friendship, that he was more of a father figure to Linda. There were also indications that he had been reading a book in the library about sexual homicides right before the murder. James Mayfield denied this through all of the trials. But just yesterday, I finally found out the real reason that that April 10th hearing was postponed. On April 5th, just five days before the hearing was to begin, Carrie Cook's attorneys, along with Smith County District Attorney Matt Bingham, met with James Mayfield and interviewed him. Mayfield gave them a taped interview. In this interview, he came clean. He admitted that he has been lying for 40 years. That he had lied when he said he hadn't had sex with Linda Edwards for weeks before the murder. That he had lied when he testified at every trial that he hadn't seen Linda Edwards on the day of the murder. In fact, he said that Linda had been following him around that day. That she even followed him to his house. And that he was afraid that she was going to follow him all the way to Houston. He said that she would have ruined him. And he admitted that he had told several people that Linda was going to ruin him a statement that he denied making through every trial. On this tape, he finally has admitted that he was the one with the clear motive to kill Linda Jo Edwards. And this is why Carrie's attorneys postponed the hearing, so that they can include this new evidence in the new hearing that's going to happen tomorrow. And many of you may be asking yourselves, why would Mayfield all of a sudden come clean? Why now? Why after 40 years would he finally admit that he's been lying all this time? He had no reason to come clean. The Smith County DA's office has had his back this whole time. When all of the evidence pointed towards him being the killer, including the DNA evidence on her panties that were laying right next to her dead, mutilated body, came back to a match to him, they still insisted that it was Carrie Max cook, whom they had no physical evidence against whatsoever, they had one witness that claimed that she saw him there the night of the murder, but who had originally identified James Mayfield. Yet still, the DA's office has always stood up on their soapbox and insisted that James Mayfield is innocent and Carrie Max Cook is the one who murdered Linda Jo Edwards. So with the power of the Smith County DA's office behind him, Why would Mayfield all of a sudden finally come clean? Well, the answer became clear yesterday. I'm holding in my hand a letter from District Attorney Matt Bingham to James Mayfield. This is a letter that was given to him prior to this interview. And let me read you the last two paragraphs verbatim. It says, All anyone is looking for is the truth, and I am authorized to tell you that you will have immunity from prosecution for any answer that you would give as to any question asked of you regarding the events surrounding the death of Linda Joe Edwards. Simply stated, you are not at risk as to any information that you give us today about your previous testimony in Grand Jury, the trial of Carrie Max Cook, or surrounding the death of Linda Joe Edwards. I have signed below in my official capacity in order that you will understand that you have complete immunity from prosecution as to any answer that you might give to us or any information that you might furnish to us today or at a later date. The Smith County DA's office gave James Mayfield full immunity from prosecution. That's the reason why he talked. That's why he finally came clean because nothing could happen to him. He has a document in his hand. He has a get-out-of-jail-free card. Of all the things that I have seen the Smith County District Attorney's Office do, this is the absolute most disgusting thing I have ever seen. After 40 years of continuing to persecute and attempt to prosecute Kerry Max Cook and fight his exoneration, they turn around and give the one man, the one Actual viable suspect. The person whose DNA is on the scene. The person who was identified as being in her bedroom the night of the murder. They gave him immunity from prosecution. For years, all the way from A.D. Clark to David Dobbs to Matt Bingham, this district attorney's office has stood up on their soapbox and say that they have fought Carrie Max Cook's exoneration because they're fighting for justice for Linda Joe Edwards. In these assholes turned around And gave the person who in all likelihood is the one who actually murdered Linda Jo Edwards immunity from prosecution. And even after he has made these statements and admitted he's been lying for 40 years, the Smith County DA's office continues to fight Carrie Max Cook's exoneration. Just two days ago, Matt Bingham stood in that courtroom and argued to exclude all of the evidence that Kerry Max Cook's team is trying to present in this trial to prove his innocence. To finally make him a free man. To finally lose the stigma of being a convicted rapist and murderer. I have never been more disgusted in my life. Several of my listeners have emailed and tweeted at me asking me, Why would this DA's office insist and keep on fighting to convict and withhold the convictions of innocent men and women? Why would they go through all the trouble of manufacturing evidence and manipulating witnesses and paying off jailhouse snitches to convict innocent people? Well, I think that I finally have the answer to that question. I've been studying a lot over the last several months about criminal behavior and about psychopaths and serial killers. And in my studies, I found some very disturbing parallels between many serial killers and the members of the Smith County District Attorney's Office. A psychopath is a person without empathy for other human beings. They don't care about anyone but themselves. The only care they have for other people is for their ability to manipulate people into getting what they want. They get off on having control over other people's lives, and they love watching other people suffer. This is the definition of a psychopath. Some psychopaths become serial killers, and others become prosecutors. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget that you can purchase any of the songs or the entire album of Truth and Justice, the soundtrack on iTunes. And please do go download a couple of songs of the whole album because all of those proceeds go directly to Johnny Rhodes for all of the work that he's done free of charge to provide all the music for the Truth and Justice podcast. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And again, I want to give a huge thanks to Daniel Schaefer for working long hours and late nights to get the editing done on the podcast. I want to thank all of today's sponsors they're the ones that are funding this program and funding all of the trips and the investigations our sponsors today were libertarianism.org stamps.com and squarespace and i want to thank all of you for staying engaged staying in touch we're really at a point with edward eight's case and kenny snow's case where we need to draw in as much public attention as possible so please keep talking about these cases on twitter on facebook tell your friends Keep sending your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send me those new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Remember, our Twitter handle is at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.